Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Joanne Freeman. On Backstory, Brian, Nathan, our colleague Ed Ayers, and I, all historians, take a topic and explore it through three centuries of American history. Today, Nathan, Brian, and I are going to tackle the subject of hair. And we're going to start in 1958. At that time, all young single men were at risk of being drafted into the U.S. Army. But there was one man whose conscription caused a national uproar. Hundreds of concerned citizens even wrote letters to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Historian Joseph Thompson says that many of them pleaded the same case. This is Thompson reading from one of those letters. I really don't see why you have to send him in the Army at all. But we beg you, please, please don't give him a GI haircut. Oh, please, please don't. If you do, <laughs> we will just about die. And they signed the letter, Elvis Presley Lovers. That's right. The matter at hand, making it all the way up to Eisenhower's desk, was Elvis Presley's famous hair. But the pleas from his female fans were ignored. On March 24th, Private Presley reported for duty. Nearly 70 newsmen were on hand to capture that anxious moment. His lucrative career as rock and roll king interrupted for a while. Elvis Presley begins his military service at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. Just another GI to become acquainted with those interminable army lineups. The following day came the moment of truth so many of his fans feared. Presley climbed into one of Fort Chaffee's barber chairs. Uncle Sam doesn't play favorites, and those celebrated sideburns, which were his trademark, are sacrificed to military uniformity. He's making jokes in the, in the barber's chair as the civilian barber is cutting his hair, and uh, he supposedly picks up some of the hair and blows it out of his hand and says, hair today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> Locks his fans would love to touch, shorn and scattered on the barbershop floor. He gets up to leave, and he has, and it's kind of an embarrassing moment for Elvis because he has to come back because he forgot to pay this civilian barber the 65 cents that he owned, it, <laughs> which, as he was raking in millions of dollars a year, he could certainly afford. Elvis's hair had been cut down in its prime. Okay, Brian, uh, why exactly is this so important to his fans? Well, Nathan, Thompson says that at the time, Elvis's hair wielded quite a bit of power. At one level, we, we can just consider his hair as a, a symbol of this male virility, right, and sexual potency that he performed so well. So he's got lots of hair. He's got lots of hair. It's, yeah, exactly. And if you watch early footage of him, his hair moves like almost as much as his hips, right? And it's always kind of dropping down over his eyes. He's always having to push it back. And we should note that Elvis was really kind of copying black hairstyles, hmm. and particularly a black hairstyle known as a process, right? And ironically, the process itself is a black imitation of white hairstyle. So right. with Elvis, you have this kind of cultural exchange coming back around. So in the, in this, in the mid-50s, when you're having these rampant fears about juvenile delinquency and it's also the end of Jim Crow segregation, I mean, Elvis, 
that was really represented like the culmination of a lot of white middle-class fears. Uh, and not just in the South. There was ministers, especially from all over the country, who were denouncing Elvis, uh, you know, leading this slippery slope into what, what one of them called a jellyfish morality. In other words, issues of sex, race, and even the moral compass of the nation were all wrapped up in Elvis's wavy, pomade-laden hair. That government-issued haircut threatened to neutralize his dangerous image. And Thompson says that the new do, and his time in the service, did change Elvis's image. In the long run, it made him more acceptable to white, middle-class America. Frank Sinatra uh, famously trashed rock and roll before Elvis went into the Army, but his, his daughter Nancy was there at Fort Dix, New Jersey, when Elvis came back in 1960 on behalf of her father and presenting Elvis with a box of shirts, kind of welcoming him into the fold of mainstream pop. <laughs> yeah, with a box of shirts. And Elvis's first public musical performance when he got back was a TV special with Frank Sinatra in May of 1960. In a way, Thompson says, those fans who were writing letters to Eisenhower had legitimate fears. Elvis did have something to lose. And so did they. The overt sexuality, the kind of nonconformity. So if you take that away from their idol, from the person that they love so much that they would write the president in his defense, then that feels like an affront to them. Elvis was a was a in many ways was a you can think about him as a conduit for young women to express their own sexuality, right? And so if you take that away from them, that's that's not only uh, Elvis getting a haircut, that's a repression of them as well. And so whenever we we kind of land on these historical moments where hair seems important, it's because people are making an important political statement through that hair. So he really was onto something when he said, "Hair today, gone tomorrow." <laughs> I believe he was, yeah. Whether you spend minutes or hours on your hair, or if you're like me and you don't spend any time at all, those strands or lack thereof say something to people around you. And as the Elvis case shows, your hair can tell people that you want to stand out or that you're striving to fit in. But throughout American history, regardless, hair has been wrapped up in identity, reflecting social tensions of the day. So today on the show, we're going to look at the tangled topic of hair in American history. We'll find out why Americans made buttons and even reeds from their manes in the 19th century. We'll chat with one of the world's top hair collectors, and we'll hear from you, our listeners, about what message your hair sends to others. We already mentioned that hair can be very personal. It can represent identity and attitude. And perhaps because of that, hair can also be big business. No one knew that better than the woman who became known as Madam C.J. Walker. She was an African-American entrepreneur who built a business empire out of hair care in the early 20th century. Madam C.J. Walker was one of those amazing American rags-to-riches stories. This is journalist Aelia Bundles. She's also Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter. Born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, right after the Civil War in 1867, a poor washerwoman until she was 38, discovered a formula that healed scalp infections and helped hair grow, 
made a fortune. And by the time she died in uh, 1919 at 51, she was a millionaire. Bundle's mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother all helped run the company Madam Walker started. Her father was even an executive in a rival hair care company. Hair care has been her family's business for generations. Now, Walker's business was successful almost from the very start, mixing the personal and the professional. Thousands of Walker company agents sold shampoos, ointments, and hair moisturizers to African-American women across the country. Sometimes the agents, all women of color, went door to door. They also held demonstrations at private homes or churches. So it sounds like what we're talking about here is something along the lines of Mary Kay Cosmetics, right? That's exactly right, Joanne. But before Mary Kay even existed. Madam Walker was also a controversial figure, even during her own lifetime. That's because she sold products designed to straighten African-American hair. And her critics would say to make it conform to white American beauty standards. The best known is something called the hot comb. But Bundle says Walker's bestseller was also her very first product, Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. This product and her whole business model grew out of something less controversial, Walker's efforts to manage her own hair. She was going bald because she had really bad dandruff and really bad scalp infections because hygiene was really different. Uh, 150 years ago when she was born, people didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have electricity. They didn't bathe very often. Necessity is the mother of invention. She was losing her hair, then she needed something to solve her problem. So how did she go about solving that problem? Did she just try, you know, mixing different formulae that were bubbling in the bucket? (laughs) Well, you know, now we walk into the drugstore and there are thousand different kinds of shampoos and everything that we take for granted. But then there really wasn't this hair care and cosmetics market. So you couldn't just walk in the store and find something on the shelves. Her brothers were barbers in St. Louis in the late 19th century. Ah, So she learned some things from her brothers. She experimented with home remedies. For a while, she sold the products uh, of a woman named Annie Malone, who became her major competitor. And with a combination of all of those things, as well as working briefly for a pharmacist in Denver, she was really his cook, but he was able to analyze these various formulas and helped her figure out what she wanted. She was selling door-to-door, traveling around Colorado with this very small Black population that was there. And then her boyfriend from from St. Louis, Charles Joseph Walker, moved to... um, Denver, and they got married. She became Madam C.J. Walker, and she was taking out ads selling Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower. I love looking through old ads in newspapers. I wonder if you could tell me what Madam Walker's advertisements looked like. Just look at my hair. You can see <laughs> that I used to be bald, and now I have a full head of hair. Uh-huh. The advertising industry was really just being born in the early 1900s when she was starting out. But she was already using her own image in her before and after pictures. She was using testimonials. Before I started using Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long. And now (laughs) it's down my back and I've been able to throw my wig away. And she really had before photographs? She had before photographs. The very earliest photograph of her, her hair is very short and patchy. She used that as the centerpiece of her ad. And then on either side, she had a front view 
and a side view with her hair down below her shoulders. Wow. She looked like a very African, African-American woman, really full-featured, uh, dark skin, and therefore like most of her customers. So she became, of course, a remarkable business empire, really. Tell me the story of how she transitioned from one kind of very innovative and energetic salesperson to a large-scale business. I think she was like a sponge in terms of watching what other people were doing because in 1904, when this World's Fair was in St. Louis, the National Association of Colored Women, this amazing group of civic-minded women from all over the United States, met in her church. And she watched how these women organized. And when she was ready to organize her sales agents, she told her attorney, I want us to structure ourselves like the National Association of Colored Women with with wow. local chapters and state chapters. And what about the agents themselves? What what could a typical agent expect to bring in selling Madam Walker's uh, hair product? So, it, it, it of course, it varied, and it depended sure. on the hustle of the agent. In the testimonials, in her advertisements, one woman said, you have made it possible for a Black woman to make more money in a day than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. And she said, I have agents who are making, you know, as much as $100 a week. Most, of course, are not making that much. Some are making 50 some are making 20 some are making 10 There was some controversy about some of her products, right? The, the hot comb that was used to straighten hair, trying to make African-American hair look more European. Absolutely. I mean, and you can't get away from that. So, of course, she did not invent the straightening comb, and that's the, the myth about her. But there was a pressure, both internally and externally, for women of European standards of beauty. And, you know, this when we look at this through a 21st century lens, it's very easy to be critical. Um, but we consider 90% of African Americans lived in the rural South, and again, hygiene was really different. People didn't have these options. They would keep their hair tied up all winter long. Women wanted to be able to do something else with their hair than hi- other than hide it. Mm. And so we have this, you know, we have this uh, complicated relationship with, with beauty in America. We still see it. You know, this pressure to conform to a European standard of beauty is, is still with us. Why is hair such a lightning rod? <laughs> yes. You know, this is, I'm, you know, I will be 65 in a few days. And I, so I am a uh, survivor of the hair wars of the 1960s and 70s. You, you've been, you've been through a lot, I'm sure. So in the late 1960s, when I was trying to express myself as a young black woman, hair was very much a part of that expression. And I decided I wanted an Afro. And my father was adamantly opposed to this. (laughs) But my mother, who was much wiser about hair, uh, took me to the Walker Beauty School. And the Walker students rolled my hair up on permanent wave rods and fashioned a big afro. And eventually my perm grew out. And I thought when I went from a perm to a natural, to my big, you know, large halo of a natural hairstyle, I thought that we were through that. I thought that we had uh, overcome that and women would be comfortable with their hair. And that pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. 
Some of it is just beauty and aesthetics and culture, and some of it is political. And I think that natural hair threatens people who don't really believe that African Americans should have full equality. And I mean, I wish it weren't that basic, but I think that hair is an expression of I'm comfortable with myself, I love Mm -hmm. myself, and that is just too much for some people. Now, you're a journalist, and you've written about Mm -hmm. your great-great-grandmother, Madam Walker. Has your own take on her story changed over the course of your writing career? I think growing up, I was um, ambivalent about her because in the late 60s, when other people had their views about Madam Walker and it was, she's uh, the person who invented the hot comb, I really was trying to step away because that wasn't something that I wanted to know about. And then W.E.B. Du Bois was my intellectual hero. And I discovered when I was in college doing some research, his obit of her in the crisis magazine. And he had good things to say about her. And I said, well, you know, maybe I need to re-examine who she is. And then I continued to do research. I discovered she had known all of these people who I admired, like Ida B. Wells and Mary McLeod Bethune, and that she was a political activist, that she was even called a Negro subversive by the Woodrow Wilson administration because she was so outspoken on lynching and on the rights of black soldiers. So Once I was able to combine her entrepreneurship, her um, empowerment of women, and her political activism, then I saw her in an entirely different light. Alelia Bundles is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker and the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Earlier, we heard from Joseph Thompson, a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of Virginia and our show's researcher. So I really love that exchange, Brian, with Alelia Bundles. And I got to share with you all this quote that I found that really does speak to this in Madam C.J. Walker's own terms. This is actually taken from the annual convention of National Negro Businesses in 1912. No fair doing research, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) She says, quote, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. She's talking about the door being closed by black businessmen. I feel that I am in a business that is a credit to the womanhood of our race. I went into a business that is despised, that is criticized and talked about by everybody, the business of growing hair. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. I was promoted there to the wash tub. Then I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations, unquote about getting out of the most menial forms of labor that are available to black women at that time and providing a kind of elevation for herself and so many other women, really, hair as access. And it just made me think, again, how many other ways can we think about the value of hair as obviously an expression, but also as something that's kicking down doors to new political conversations and new opportunities? That's an amazing quote on so many levels, because obviously it's about race, but it's also about gender and it's also about class, right? It's about all of those things. And certainly I think that if you look (laughs) way back to early America and think about hair and markers and power, 
Mm-hmm. Certainly, there were certain ways of wearing your hair that would have been seen as assertions of power in one way or another. And, you know, it's sort of the same thing when you think about what people wore in the 18th century, particularly men, right. and they had the sort of white frilly cuffs. Um, the reason why wealthy people wore those is because they were the ones who could keep that clean, right? So if you mm-hmm. had them, it was a marker that you were wealthy and and you were showing it literally on your sleeves. And I think I there was a- my shirt clean. That's yeah, funny. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not referring to myself at all in any way. But that was a statement. And I think hair as well in that period, powdered hair, if you powdered your mm-hmm. hair, was an assertion that you were wealthy enough to have that, that you were- Um, had enough leisure time to worry about that and that, you know, basically your appearance advertised to the world that you were of a certain ilk. And if you didn't have that, the assumption was that you were not. I mean, I think it was kind of clear to people. There's a there's a famous spy story during the revolution of John Andre, who's a British spy who was in on Benedict Arnold's plot to deliver West Point to the British. And one of the ways in which Andre is found out is that although he's disguised himself as John Anderson, average guy, the hair ribbon that he's wearing has a little powder on it. (laughs) And someone who sees that ribbon says, wait a minute, (laughs) you're a gentleman, you know? So those were powerful markers. And, And although that's not necessarily banging down doors, that's certainly keeping doors closed. Right. Well, hair, well, hair is dangerous. Um, and obviously, you know, for people like Madam C.J. Walker and those who she was representing, the, the meaning of black women's hair was certainly different than that of the kind of powdered men of the 19th century. But there's still, right? I mean, there's an idea that you can sum up the meaning of an entire group of people based on how they basically quaff. I mean, the, right. the, the notion of the mammy as the black woman whose hair is tied in a, in a bandana, that's meant to show that she is not the person who can afford the grooming supplies. She's not meant to look beautiful, even in some cases to be a woman right. in public. Yeah, Nathan, that quote is so compelling because it's all about control, which, of course, African-Americans were struggling for, well, <laughs> forever. Uh, but mm-hmm. they have or are at least gaining a bit more control over their lives, certainly compared to slavery. And it's important to remember that this is a woman who ends up employing 40,000 agents, right? Right. She sets up what we might call the Facebook of her time by going (laughs) from church to church and recruiting all of these church women to be her agents to sell these hair products. And strikes me also on the personal level that hair is virtually the only part of our bodies uh, that we actually can control, that we can do something with, that we can use uh, to show something about ourselves. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a six-foot-five bow-legged guy uh, (laughs) with a very large nose, none of which I can control and always have wanted to, uh, that hair is one of the few things that I actually can exercise some control over. And I think that's why it's been so important. But, you know, I want to pipe in for a moment here as a woman. (laughs) We're talking about race and class. I don't (laughs) see gender, Joanne. Brian. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll give him a pass on that I'm not going to go there. But what I wanted to talk about for a moment is... Um, you know, I've I've seen and read about the fact that um, 
men are capable of having of dressing neutrally so that you can mm. you can wear a certain kind of pair of pants and you can wear basically a, a nice tidy shirt and you're not making a statement really and right. I, I think for women that's much harder to do with clothing and i think it's equally hard to do with hair because i think no matter what mm -hmm. you do with your hair you're making a statement to a degree that's not true if you're just a guy with short hair so Absolutely. if i wear my hair up it says something if i wear my hair down it says something if i cut it short it says something you know i mean it 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 no matter what i do with my hair and i think this is true of most women you realize mm -hmm. that you're making a statement and there have been times when i've gotten up and spoken to the public and had my hair tied back. Uh, I gave a lecture. I finished the lecture. Someone came up to me afterwards, a guy, uh, and said, you know, you should wear your hair down. It would be much more attractive that way. Why, oh why was You're it tied kidding. back? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and, and what did you say? I actually said, that's why I wear it up. <laughs> I don't think he got what I was saying. I don't think he understood what right. I was saying. Yeah, so that you wouldn't right. be thinking just right. what you're thinking. But yeah. Wow. I would venture to say, guys, that probably neither one of you has stood up and given some kind of a public lecture and had someone come up to you afterwards and commented on your hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, never. Never happened. Well, no, I mean, it's I mean, it's so interesting because you think about you give these talks and the first thing you do is you kind of debrief about how it went right. in your own mind. And I, I think if anybody came up and put my own appearance on the table again for one more thing to be worried about, I don't know if I could take it. Right. right. Well, right. And, but I do think, and it, it's related to everything that we're saying here, hair is such a charged thing generally for women, I think. Yeah. Joanne, I want to complicate this a little bit. Uh, uh -oh. I, okay. You guys know I have three African-American kids. And I will tell you that, especially when they were young, of course, this is when I was always with them, when I would know best, when we were out in public, it was not unusual for complete strangers to come up and just start feeling their hair. I think what's interesting about the problem of, you know, touching the head of black children, because I, too, have three African-American children. And you, you actually have to be on guard about policing strangers touching your children's heads. So, Nathan, I'm assuming this happens to your kids. We've never really talked about that. It absolutely does. But but I think it's also true that my my girls are already bearing the burden that, you know, Joanne is describing insofar as their hair always has a different kind of meaning than our boy, right? And our boy goes out with his hair kind of like matted up and, and, and my wife will not let the girls leave the house without it being brushed in a particular way. I mean, it's actually kind of striking. I've never <laughs> thought about it in this way until just now. But, you know, we, with three children, two girls and a boy, the girls get a touch up every day. The boy is just kind of left. You know, to just kind of be wild and mangly. And then it's like, oh, he's so edgy, right? It's kind of like a, a, a positive value judgment on the fact that we don't. But, but I think it, it's, it's absolutely necessary to think about this dynamic where women in public are always going to have to consider their hair as a site of some kind of political commentary or meaning. Right. Absolutely. Backstory listeners to tell us about how hair reflects their identity. We learned that Nathan likes the fact that his hair doesn't say too much about him. Shh, that was our secret. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> hey, Backstory. 
I'm Toby, an American living in Dresden, Germany. And I thought about your question about hair, and I realized that I grew up in one of those families where all the boys went to the barber together and got the exact same haircut, which is just like what the army requires. And then later I grew my hair out. When I moved away, I cut it back to my official family haircut in order to, like, I don't know, have a piece of them with me. This is Samantha from Illinois. I've had long hair almost my whole life and I've always associated my identity and prettiness with it being long because I received the message loud and clear from just about every direction, especially my mom. I'll never forget that as a kid, my best friend cut her hair short and her elderly male neighbor told us that a woman should have long hair because hair is a woman's crowning glory. And it wasn't until recently at the age of 33 that I felt comfortable enough with myself to admit, hey, I want my hair very short and I have for a long time, but I was too afraid people wouldn't think I'm pretty anymore and that's so important. So I had it cut into a pixie and I love it. Hey, Backstory Camp Folk. My name's Jay. I'm 28, identify as black. I live in the DC metro area to the north. The haircut that I rock almost religiously is the Caesar one and a half, faded to the side and to the back. Um, but I'm also growing on my beard. And I know that there are historical accounts of black men not being permitted to grow beards because of the masculinity and manhood that is symbolized. Thanks. Those were the voices of Diana Harper, Debbie Seligson, TJ Gregory, and Backstory's founding host, Peter Oniff. Thanks to all the listeners who reached out with their stories. When historian Helen Shoemaker was a teenager, she stumbled upon a strange artifact at an antique fair. It was just a little thing, a small button made of woven material. But she says she noticed something odd about the fabric. The dealer who was grumpy, I asked him if it was hair. It looked like hair to me. And he said, no, that would be stupid. <laughs> it turns out it wasn't that stupid. The button was made of human hair. Shoemaker would later learn that using hair in ornamental objects was fashionable throughout the 19th century. For example, in the Victorian era, some Americans had the locks of their loved ones fashioned into elaborate room decorations in which the hair would be arranged in wreaths or flowers. But the more popular kind was hair jewelry, and it was in the form of everything from earrings to bracelets to watch chains. Shoemaker says the fad died out by the 1920s, but at the height of its 19th century popularity, hair art and jewelry had deep meaning. It was a reflection of the Victorian penchant for sentimentality. It was supposed to be from the heart. It was supposed to reflect your very close connections to other people and your emotions, but in very artificial, structured ways. So the hair was used to represent the individual, but I think even more it represented the um, emotional connections between individuals. And why hair? Why was hair such an important medium for expressing this sentimentality? Yeah, they thought of hair as a physical extension of the person, this became all the more important when a person died, but it was, uh, it was an important aspect of it when the person was alive as well. 
They talked a lot about it as a living part of the person that never aged. That is actually true. Once the hair is made into hair jewelry, the hair stays the same as when it was originally made. Hair, I think, had a pliability to it, both in terms of its material, but also in terms of its, it didn't actually depict the person, but it was the person. So what kind of people uh, wore hair art or displayed hair art in their homes? Largely white middle-class Americans. It's much rarer to come across um, jewelry made of hair that was uh, extremely inexpensive. There's a certain mm-hmm. amount of hand labor that just made it, you know, in the in the cost range for the middle class or at least comfortable. And was it just the cost or was there something about middle class culture at this time that just screamed out for hair? Yeah, this was more about expressing a kind of middle-class identity. The middle-class status was derived in part by a man being able to support a wife and family at in a home. So women weren't supposed to be working outside the home for pay. That sets up a kind of tension between the work world that the man is competing in and the home domestic life that is supposed to be quite distinct and apart from that economic world. And how did hair bridge that divide or bridge that gap? So one of the most popular forms of hair um, art was the man's watch chain. And would this be something that he wore on his wrist or something that he hung from his belt? It would be something he would wear actually over the vest but under his jacket. I see. Uh-huh. And then the end of it held the watch that was tucked into a pocket on the other side. So when you saw a man wearing the male uniform of the dress suit or the business suit, um, one of the most popular accents was this braid of usually your wife's hair intermixed with the hair of your children. So it served as a reminder to you, to the man, but also to the people around him, that he had an emotional life beyond his work life. So what do you think the popularity of hair art among the middle class in the 19th century tells us about the way they conceived of themselves? So I think that the hair art really taps into the ways in which 19th century Americans were uneasy about the culture as it moved towards a more modern um, 20th century outlook. Mm -hmm. And what they were concerned about was that it was eroding the emotional ties between people, the very reason that you would be working, the very reason that you would partner with somebody was also being undermined by this larger economic change. And what is today's equivalent of hair art? If you've ever been at a grocery store or a convenience store and the person who checks you out has a row of photo buttons and they're their grandchildren or their children, you are seeing the same phenomena. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. So at our Walmart, when I get checked out, I'll sometimes have a clerk who will have three or four of these photograph buttons. Sure, sure. And what she's telling me without having to say it is, I am a lot more than this job. 
because I have emotional relationships and responsibilities. How long did you work on your book about hair art? Ten years or so I lived with the project. Okay, so when you told people you examined lots of hair art, what was the reaction? Most people asked if it had um, bugs. <laughs> that was by far the most, you know, like, did, it, did I see a lot of bugs? You know, it was just hair. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Backstory today. Thank you. Helen Shoemaker is a historian at Miami University and the author of Love Entwined, The Curious History of Hair Work in America. We just heard Helen Shoemaker describe how 19th century Americans treasured hair, making art or even sending their locks as a token of love or friendship. As a result, there is a lot of famous hair floating around out there. And even today, celebrity hair is a lucrative niche market. A market that collector John Reznikoff knows how to navigate. I own the record for the largest collection of historical and celebrity hair locks. When we called up Reznikoff, he told us that his job is a little like the document-scavenging movie National Treasure. Similar to... Nicholas Cage, only I don't steal the Declaration of Independence. I buy it. <laughs> so that's what I do. Through his collection, Reznikoff helped authenticate a clump of Elvis's hair from his famous army haircut you heard about earlier. It sold for $15,000 in 2009. But that's not the only relic from the king in Reznikoff's collection. I have several different samples, but one of the samples I have is from uh, his hairdresser one of his hairdressers. Is that the most famous uh, bit of hair or bits of hair that you have in your collection? Oh, well, I mean, it depends. I mean, if you're an Elvis fan, it is. But uh, if you could care less about Elvis, I, I, I think there are other locks of hair that I have that are you know, far more important historically and more desirable. For instance, I have the Lincoln lock of hair that was removed the night of the assassination to clear the wound. Wow. Yes. What is the brief history of that lock of hair? How did it move from Lincoln's head to your collection? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting, and we have, you know, reams of documentation, but the surgeon that night was Charles Taft, and that surgeon passed on the hair to his son, who sold it to a Civil War general. Uh, apparently also several strands of that hair were purchased by Lincoln's uh, Assistant Secretary John Hay, who put it in a ring and the night of Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration presented that ring with hair in it to Teddy Roosevelt as a token of his esteem. <laughs> How did Roosevelt react to that? Uh, well, I don't know. I wasn't there. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you that uh, this, this particular lock of hair, it's probably my most valuable lock. And I, I'd say... It's somewhere between a half and three-quarters of a million dollars. Wow. Wow. You know, I'm a, I'm a host of a pretty popular podcast. Should I sign a non-disclosure agreement with my barber? I, you know, it's, again, an, an Internet search will, will show how I was involved with buying Neil Armstrong's hair when he was alive. It came from his barber. 
and he went crazy, absolutely crazy, and threatened to sue. And uh, <laughs> it became a, it became kind of a little bit of a nightmare. But he never got his hair back. Uh, and those types of things are not unfathomable that it could happen. So, how long have you been collecting hair altogether? I'm going to say about 25 years. Has it changed the way you think about hair? Um, it hasn't changed how I think about hair, but but the advances in DNA have really conceptually changed the way I think about the collection because uh-huh. it's just a matter of time until we get to a point where there is an accurate test by uh, the hair that we have. And then you start thinking about that scientists are trying to decode what sickness John F. Kennedy had or right. Um, right. all these types of things that could be done with the DNA that exists in this uh, collection that I have. And in essence, what I have is a card catalog of the DNA of many of the most famous people in history. John Reznikoff is founder of University Archives, which deals in historical artifacts. Over the past weeks, our listeners have been sending us stories that tell the meaning behind their hair. Here are a few more of those voices. This is Diana. It's hard to summarize the entire weight of something like having dreadlocks, but starting dreadlocks when I was 17 in a very white and rural part of America was the first true action of bodily autonomy that I engaged in. And it was something that allowed me to claim blackness as a mixed-race person in a way that wasn't available to me otherwise. Now they're just part of who I am. They also continue to represent agency and autonomy, and I love them for it. Hi, my name is Debbie Seligson, and I've had a purple streak in my hair for about seven years. I didn't know how it would go over, but I've even testified in front of a congressional committee with my purple hair. I never really loved my own curly hair until I added the purple. It really has become my brand. Hey, this is TJ from Virginia with my facial hair story. I had wanted a beard for a while. Unfortunately, I was writing out my time on a contract with some pretty strict rules about that, to the point I was supposed to be shaving even on my time away from work. Nevertheless, I skipped it enough on weekends and leave to get a glimpse of how I'd look, and I liked it. Anyway, when I finally separated from the service and moved on to grad school, I think I got to about eight months of growth before trimming back. It was bliss. (laughs) My fellow redheads out there will understand this. Now, instead of being the guy who looks like Opie, Axl Rose, Archie, etc., I'm the guy with the beard. I'm okay with that. Hello, my name's Peter Onuf, retiree, former history professor, and before that, a journalist. And it was when I was a journalist that hair was a big thing. We're talking about 1969. It was a hot-button issue, and I had a lot of it. I was working on the New Britain Herald in New Britain, Connecticut, but I never planned to stay there because I was a young man with great ambitions. 
But before I went and I was going to hitchhike across the country, I recognized the need to cut my hair in order to get rides. And the paper decided to cover my haircut. And so a colleague of mine came to the barbershop and watched me get my haircut. There's a picture of me and it was written up as an item in the news. Onuf gets his haircut. Uh, what a magnificent moment. Can you imagine that now? Well, being a trimmer, as they say in the business, I let it be trimmed. And, well, I've been fairly respectable ever since. And now don't need too much anymore because it's getting thinner and thinner. Big bald spots. And that's all there is. Those were the voices of Diana Harper, Debbie Seligson, T.J. Gregory, and for all of you who have missed him lately, Backstory's founding host, Peter Onuf. Thanks to all the listeners who reached out with their stories. I'll be chatting with Peter on next week's show as we celebrate our 200th episode. Nathan, Joanne, I did want to come back to one of our listeners' comments from a few minutes ago. Diana talked about growing out dreadlocks and the way that gave her a sense of bodily autonomy. And to me, that kind of tied one of the central themes of the show together. And that's the sense that hair is something that can represent us in our real selves like it's an authentic representation of us, at least when we get it right. Well, right. Sometimes. Let's talk a little bit about early America, because, of course, I think in most people's minds, when they think about early America, what do they think about? They think about wigs, right? Guys running mm. around in wigs. And the fact of the matter is, that's, again, in a sense, in league with everything else that we're talking about in this show, not to be taken for granted. Because although we see them as normal for early America, the fact of the matter is that go way back into the 17th century. And some people really thought that wigs were upsetting the natural order of things. You know, that they were making... Oh, come on. <laughs> well, you know, they made men maybe look like women. They made old people look young. Somehow or other, in a wig, you're hiding something or you're right. pretending to be something that you're not. Huh. It was upsetting categories. And, and just for that reason, was upsetting to some people. Now, of course, really, the, the larger point here is that Autonomy and authenticity maybe are in the eye of the beholder. Right. You know, something else that I thought was so powerful about uh, the caller's remarks, Diana's, is that, you know, as she's describing her choice to wear dreadlocks in, say, middle America, she's actually making a claim not just for autonomy, but for community, right? I mean, she's actually attempting to claim an identity that gives her a certain kind of collective meaning. And I think that's really powerful. I and mean, again, if you, if you talk about, you know, gentlemen's wigs in the colonial era, I mean, so much of the power of the wig was to locate somebody within a social stratum that had, again, peers, had power associated with that particular class of society. And if you think about the, the meaning of hair across the 20th century, it's clearly about marking you as belonging to a particular kind of collective, whether that be, you know, Afros in the Black Power period, conks in the 1940s, or something else in, in an earlier era. I mean, I think it's actually pretty profound to think about hair as something that's not just about marking authenticity or kind of a quote-unquote natural, but really about an active self-fashioning as a kind of expression that's both individualized, certainly, but also very collective in its meaning. And Nathan, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that in Diana's case, that community transcends her immediate physical 
community, most likely. Absolutely. And it connects her to Ethiopia or it connects her back to the Bible, right? In the case of dreadlocks and, you know, the Nazarenes going way back to even before colonial America in this case, right? You know, I I will confess that when I learned that we were doing a show about hair, um, I thought this was going to be a rather light episode, meaning, Mm. you know, la la la, we're going to tell some good stories. But in this case, what Nathan, what you just said about hair being a way to claim community and I think if you if you bind that up with some of what we heard, oh, that was a pun I didn't even intend, <laughs> um, with some of the callers and the the obvious deep meaning that that their hair has for them, both of those things, I didn't expect to find those in this show. And I, I find both of those things really fascinating. I guess it's proof positive yet again that, you know, sometimes the most kind of an innocuous or seemingly harmless aspects of American culture can really be full of great meaning. And, and contain the most of our humanity. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studio here in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddock, and Ramona Martinez. Our senior producer is David Stenhouse. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor. And Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna, Aaron Teeling, Korean Thomas, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>